0: I think he's entirely right to say that equality and fairness is something that almost everyone is interested in. Equity, I think, is where the left loses people often, and like the idea that it's a zero-sum game and that we have to pull certain people down or push people up and like, let's get rid of standardized tests and lower bars to entry. I think what he's talking about is what the majority of Americans agree with. And if this was the messaging coming out of the left, I think there would be less alienation.
1: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And
0: I'm Ricky Schlott.
1: Well, Ricky, I saw over the weekend you dropped a defense of Jordan Peterson.
0: I did. How's
1: that going on uh, in the interwebs?
0: It went over surprisingly well. I'm always like bracing for the Twitter backlash. But I mean, I try to be kind of balanced and, and moderate in the way that I present these things. But yeah, I had a defense of Peterson. His daughter tweeted it, which is cool. Oh, nice. Um, she's a
1: podcaster, from what I understand,
0: right? Yeah, she's been like I think she's hosted his podcast when he was ill and stuff like that. So she's she's kind of getting into that sphere as well. Um, and I think they're both like they only eat meat, which is a point mm-hmm. of difference. But like they literally, they literally only eat meat. Only eat meat. Does it so mean like
1: no vegetables whatsoever. Yeah, like
0: I'm pretty sure they're on like hundred percent like carnivorous diet, huh. <laughs> which is interesting to me. That's a point of, of disagreement. But um, it was it was a fun article, people respondable to it so
1: yeah I think you know one of the, the ironies of this show is that when we talk about Peterson I'm generally more skeptical even though like mm-hmm. my identity as a dude like I think people I've had people actually say this to me in real life that they expect me to be more pro Peterson um, but our producer has told us we hit the quota on Peterson talk a couple episodes ago so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna limit the amount of discussion we have of him but proud of you for that article I, I saw it everywhere I saw a lot of people mentioning it and even in aggregators that I see like real clear politics and stuff. I saw it linked in a bunch of places. Oh, interesting.
0: I didn't even know that. Um,
1: But we have a couple fun stories today. We're gonna talk about an out-of-state roofer who is arrested in Florida for repairing a hurricane-damaged roof without a proper license. And we're gonna talk about how that story reveals actually a potential area for Republicans and Democrats to work together to reform Mm -hmm. certain laws around the country. Uh, Two is we've got a story about the Biden administration. They changed some rules around gig workers that could have huge implications for People like Uber and Lyft, but also at-home healthcare workers, freelance writers, etc. Uh, this is like a, a potentially revolutionary area of law that a lot of companies think could bankrupt some of these companies that we depend upon. But the first story I wanted to talk about today is uh, Barack Obama, our former president, my former boss, went on Pod Save America, and he made some head-turning remarks. I think they got a lot of attention on the internet. Ricky, where should we start here?
0: Well, I think one thing that was super interesting to me as sort of a anti-cancel culture proponent myself is that I think he basically talked around using the term, mm-hmm. but he pretty much told Democrats like stop being buzzkills. So. Yeah.
2: <laughs> not not being a buzzkill, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's well, that's so, a lesson for the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and sometimes Democrats are, right? It's it's like, you know, sometimes you know people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells uh, and, and, and they want some acknowledgement that life is messy and that all of us at any given moment uh, can say things the wrong way, make mistakes. Uh, Michelle talks uh, about her mother-in-law or her mother, my mother-in-law, who is a, a extraordinary one. But as Michelle points out, she's 86 and sometimes it, you know, trying to get the right phraseology when we're talking about issues, Michelle's like, that's like her trying to learn Spanish. It doesn't mean she shouldn't try to learn Spanish, but it means that sometimes she's not gonna get the words right. Uh, and that's okay, right? And, and, and that attitude, I think, of uh, uh, just being a little more real and a little more grounded.
1: Yeah, I, I found this really fascinating, Ricky, as background for new listeners, I left law school back in 2007 to join Obama's campaign. I was one of the first like dozen people on that campaign, so I got to see it like go from an exploratory committee all the way through when we won, and then I worked in mm-hmm. his administration. And what's interesting about the remarks he made is that he, he touched on a couple of things This week that I, as somebody who was just in it for a while, they don't feel new to me. I know that they feel new because they're landing in a different kind of way in 2022. But, you know, his original speech at the Democratic National Convention that made him famous was all about Mm -hmm. how there's not a red America uh, or a blue America or a black America or a white America. And every message we had in that campaign was all about inclusion and trying to bring as many people as possible into the tent as possible. It is remarkable that in 2022, what he's saying, at least to some, feels like it's surprising and different in the Democratic Party that I've called my home for much of my life.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm I familiar with prior comments that he's made to the same effect of like anti-cancel culture or at least like anti um, the sort of like intolerant tolerance that I think is coming on the left where if you're if you're not tolerant in the right way or if you don't articulate things in the proper sense then the Twitter mob comes for you which I realize is the squeakiest wheels and they tend to get amplified which I think is the case in any political group but for me it's frustrating because I like I know he's pragmatic on this issue and I wish he'd say it more often it's like a few clips from years apart where he's mentioned this And I think it's something that clearly, like all the polling data where, um, I'm working on a book right now that's largely talking about cancel culture and the demise of free speech culture. And virtually all the polling data says that almost everyone's sick of PC culture going too far, sick of um, intolerance and cancel culture and castigating people. And that's not a way to bring people in, it's pushing people out. And I think he's totally right on this. And I wish that he would ring the alarm bells a little more forcefully, but like I even, I tweeted out this quote from him, like from from this podcast clip, mm-hmm. and it's getting quote by people on the left, being like, "Obama's a conservative," and blah right. blah blah. And it's <laughs> like, I I mean, he's getting dragged by the squeakiest wheels, but he's right. speaking for virtually every normal person.
1: Yeah, my sense for people in his his orbit, and and I've I've continued to be in and around the orbit. You know, he did this summit right after he left office, called the Obama summit, where he made remarks that were like close to this. But then mm-hmm. in 2019, in one of his other summits, he went straight at this issue, and I think he got attacked even more. More back then when he was talking about young people need to be more tolerant of views that are different than them
0: Uh, getting attacked for telling people to be tolerant of difference is just something that's so antithetical to what the democratic party is supposed to be about
1: i my sense about what was going on with him throughout those years is he didn't want to be viewed as this old guy lecturing young people because he himself viewed himself as activist when he was young yeah but now he's also
0: also, i i think there's an idea that you need to appease these loudest and squeakiest wheels and not piss them off and get dragged yeah i would
1: you know it's hard to get in his head my sense was it was less appeasement because he seemed almost like over it all for a little while it was more just like i don't want the hassle of having to deal with like the pr of being like lecturing people but let's play a clip because i think there is there's so much he talked about he talked about class versus race and how we need to focus on class more than race which i have a lot of thoughts about but uh there was one particular section where he talks about uh this you know, identity politics is such like a, um, it's got so much meaning in the public square, but he goes right at it and actually uses the term here. When we're talking
2: about putting together, as you said, durable majorities, we have to be able to speak to everybody about their common interests. And what works for, I think everybody, is the idea of basic equal treatment and fairness. That's an argument that's compatible with progress on social issues and is compatible with economic issues. I think where we get into trouble sometimes is when we try to suggest that some groups, because they historically have been victimized more, that somehow they have a status that's different than other people. And that we're going around scolding folks if they don't use exactly the right phrase or you know, that, that, that identity politics becomes the principal uh, lens through which we view you know, uh, our our
1: various political challenges. So, Ricky, somehow I think what's remarkable to me is somehow we got from the point where he was the, the president of the United States and the nominee twice for the Democratic Party, left office with 59% approval rating, to the point where years later... A lot of things happen, but one one just glaring example of this is that we had a vice presidential nominee who was explicitly selected on the basis of race, which seems Mm -hmm. to violate the test that he laid out, uh, and a party, which I'll go into, that has been obsessed in many ways of elevating race above all else.
0: I think he's entirely right to say that equality and fairness is something that almost everyone is interested in. Equity, I think, is where the left loses people often, and like the idea that you need that it's a zero-sum game, and that we have to pull certain people down or push people up, and like let's get rid of standardized tests and lower right. bars to entry. I think, I think what he's talking about is what the majority of Americans agree with, and if this was the messaging coming out of the left, I think there would be less alienation. Not to mention that his um, former vice president chose somebody explicitly based on race he also during his time on the presidential campaign trail told people that they quote ain't black if they weren't going to vote biden for him did, right. biden yeah, yeah, did yeah. which obviously that's not obama but that goes to show that well, could
1: you picture obama saying that like just no, use absolutely that not, that would that's, be an absurd But that's, the, that's like yeah. that's
0: the world that we're living in right now and that's the right. democratic party someone who was in this obama administration that's how far things have changed right. that is Like probably one of the most reductive, hideous things I've heard said in a while in politics on the left, certainly, in such a mainstream, blatant way that that people's immutable characteristics should 100% be determining their political values and and how they feel as as a citizen is it's insulting. And I I mean, it's so opposite of what Obama's saying here. Yeah,
1: And yeah, it's worth, worth saying, and this is like my brief both sides commercial, is obviously Trump ran one of the most things he was noted for at the time was claiming that Obama wasn't born in this country. Yeah. The sort of escalator speech about immigrants or just this week saying that Jews need to get their act together, like which is almost the explicit, like a different color of like what, and I would say in some ways, crazier version of what Biden was saying. But we don't even have to argue about which is worse, but to say like, I'm talking about this from inside the tent of Democrats. So if you're a Democrat listening, be like, why don't you talk about the Republicans? That's not the segment, right? This is a segment about some things that I've seen that seem to, dovetail with what Obama has seen and I'll just bring back the clock. I was an organizer in a lot of states, but one place was Iowa, Fort Dodge. We did really well in Iowa. We did uh, better than most Democrats do, not in, in the caucus, but in the general election. And we were out there in farm country, right? Wright County, Iowa. I was knocking doors of people who I bet most of them are Trump voters now. And the entire message of that campaign was extend a hand. People aren't perfect, right? That's what he's talking about here. Mm-hmm. And he talks about his his mother-in-law and how his mother-in-law's having trouble keeping up with the, the terminology and like how it's like somebody trying to learn Spanish. who doesn't know Spanish, but you have to like be patient with them if they're trying to learn. I can't keep the, like, up with the
0: terminology and I'm 22. Yeah. Like there's just a new word every two seconds that you're if you don't use it the right way, then you're somehow wrong.
1: And it's not above board. And he get he gets at this is like it's he definitely got at this in the 2019 speech he gave at the summit, which was the intentionality is bad, too. It's not that people are trying to use words to help bring more meaning to the conversation. They're actually using them to obfuscate truth and try to set people up to look stupid. So a good example I used to joke about half-joking when I was, you know, helping to elect candidates uh, during the Trump years was I would get into these gatherings of progressives and they would be like, "What? well, do you know what intersectionality is? And I would always say, that's a trick question. You should never answer that question because if you answer it, they'll be like, whatever you say, they'll be like, you don't know what it is. This, this, here's this other definition. But if you say you don't know what it is, they'll be like, well, you're not up on the lingo. How can I trust you to be an activist or leader within the movement? It's a setup, right? And I think that he's pointing out the fact that like the very terms are confusing. But I would go even further to say it's not even just that his mother in law should learn the terms. Sometimes the terms are bad and we should debate them and say these terms don't reflect reality sometimes. And that gets at like the white fragility stuff that's going on, debate around Ibram Kendi's ideas. This all started in the Obama administration when he was having debates with Coates, like mm-hmm. Ta-Nehisi Coates, about whether we should have a more generous or restrictive uh, theory of race in America. And it exploded. And I'm with you. Like he, Obama, in the absence of his voice, we lost that debate, those of us who believed in his ideology. And now there are like 100 different versions of, worse versions of Coates' ideas that are out there that dominated the party for so long.
0: Yeah, I think in in terms of like the language shifting, a perfect example of that would be like, latinx just somebody decided for everyone that that's going to be the term that we use to refer to a group of people who by almost every single polling measure either didn't know what it meant or found it offensive right because it's just like coming into a foreign language inserting a, a letter that would never be there and doing it on the basis that somehow their language is intrinsically like patriarchal right and I I mean, it just goes to show that we're losing like the left frequently loses touch with the actual people that it's trying to appeal to by going so far to appeal to them that they have just lost touch with like inflation and crime and like the kitchen table issues that are actually affecting people and that are showing up in the polls now that we head towards midterms because they're they're not talking about that. They're talking about the the larger abstractions that aren't actually touching people in their day-to-day lives.
1: Yeah, my theory of this is slightly different, although like in 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 sort of spirit, this same as where you are, whereas I think Democrats have shifted, I've noticed a lot over the past two years since I've left helping. Like when I was, you know, I, I came back into Democratic politics uh, during the Trump years, so 2017 to 2021. And during that period of time, identity politics rose above all else. And it was all about like everything we did was about counting people by race. Uh, yeah. So I would do a panel It wasn't about whose ideas and their expertise. It would be like, do we have the right amount of people? Or we do a slate of candidates. Do we have the right amount of this or that? I understand why people like are are interested in reversing historic discrimination and ensuring people are included, but I, I think the party made a mistake by obsessing over that above all else. What I've seen now is a shift in the party. You're seeing more candidates, and, and Obama mentions Fetterman, but you see more candidates who have more inclusive messaging. I'm seeing it everywhere. The problem is I think the Democrats are tainted with the the image of their own prior mistakes. So whereas I'm seeing like some of those other candidates receding from the national scene, certainly in terms of their, their uh, power within the party, we, are, we do have Biden and Harris who we've talked about, like have made a tremendous amount of mistakes on this kind of messaging. And you just have the brand of the party, which is what mm-hmm. it is now on this kind of stuff. And so that's what concerns me.
0: Yeah, and I think when you look at the the stats in the most recent polling, Republicans are outstripping Democrats. They've flipped their, their polling among independents. Right now, they have a 10-point lead versus just in September, Democrats had a three-point lead mm-hmm. among independents who are obviously the most important demographic of people. And you're really seeing Democrats gain only in college-educated kind of elite circles and the Republicans are becoming the working class party, which to me, I just, this coalition of like, here's this block and this party wins this, or like, I'm gonna pick and choose this and that and appeal to these things is so reductive and so like damaging in a democracy, in a diverse democracy that we should be like, boil down to these winnable groups. And I think it's when I look at these statistics and stuff, like it's really frustrating to see, oh, this is the party of this type of person and that type of person when we should be like fundamentally treated as individual voters and citizens. And it's part of my deeper frustration with the two party system. This idea that like coalition building should be how we get to a victory instead of just appealing to people as individual voters.
1: Yeah, what's fascinating is that Obama in this interview is asked about this New York times article that came out recently about a 250 page manuscript that Obama mm-hmm. wrote for a book with, with some other author in which he espoused many theories that seem to dovetail what he's saying today. One of which is that Democrats should focus on class instead of race, uh, which I find fascinating because it is another way to your point of dividing up the electorate. I understand why it's, it's it's hard to politic without trying to take into account group dynamics. Sometimes it's, it's pernicious. Um, it's impossible. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's just like the cynical reality, but I think it's I think it's literally actively pulling our country apart right. by reducing people to group incentives instead of individual incentives. I, I mean, I think it's pulling us apart. It's yeah. really sad.
1: I think if I could think of like the prototype campaign, if I were to replicate it in spirit, was the 2008 campaign. Because what you had there was, minus maybe Palin, is like you had Obama running on the not white America, not black America, not red, blue, et cetera, and that the hope being the message, like a very positive message. Uh, And then McCain, who famously would like, dismiss audience members who would say racist things about Obama, like Mm -hmm. explicitly didn't go there on the Reverend Wright hit and all that. Now, both campaigns, I know I was on the 2008 Obama campaign, had their data. They were like, we got to turn out this person or that person, but their rhetoric wasn't explicitly divisive. Mm -hmm. And so it was more an addition election than a subtraction election. I think we've now gotten to the point where it's it's a subtraction elections. And like we've had them for a couple cycles now where it's like literally we were going to try to instill more fear and restlessness and anxiety amongst our people to say that the Mm -hmm. other person is a threat to humanity versus just simply somebody who has different ideas. Um, It's almost, if you go back and look at the uh, McCain versus Obama, it almost looks like a West Wing episode, like the way that they were talking about each other. It was way more respectful and hopeful than we are today.
0: Yeah, it's funny looking back on that campaign now as an adult, because I was literally in third grade. I'm pretty sure if I remember right, I'm gonna out myself as having been raised partisan, But I am pretty sure I had a McCain sticker on my pencil case, and I don't think I knew at all what that meant. But thanks, mom. Um, but you should,
1: you should hang on to that. Was it McCain Palin? I
0: think, I don't know. I don't think, <laughs> I feel like I just remember McCain 08 being on my pencil case, which I'm sure my classmates and teacher yeah. loved. But um, looking back on that election, like it does, it's so foreign to me. It's not like it's just it just doesn't feel like anything that I have seen in my modern or like my my small adult context of actually being meaningfully engaged in politics and like the 08 Obama is so foreign to the image that I have of the Democratic Party now and right. it's it's really and sad because I probably for me
1: you know yeah I, I, feel and the I, same.
0: I mean and I and I feel the same on the Republican side as well but yeah, yeah like this like I probably would have voted for an 08 Obama if I was a young person yeah. at that point in time and that's something that I like I would really struggle to say that there's a modern counterpart yeah. for me in that sense. Like it's it's really sad to see how far we've drifted, especially as someone who just doesn't even remember that context, like yeah. in an advanced way.
1: There's you know, my, my hope is that politics is is cyclical and is about balance and that at some point candidates will recognize this imbalance. Because in some ways, many people have many interpretations of what happened in the Obama years in the aftermath. Mine is that, you know, there's this theory out there. That goes back uh many decades that the, the the party the the incumbent party that's had two terms in office mm-hmm. is almost always followed by something very different from it yeah right you know you had um, you know, JFK, you know was the young alternative to Eisenhower. You had Nixon, who is like the sort of stodgy experienced alternative to the LBJ, a JFK youth, Carter who was like the honest peanut farmer to the sort of Watergate scandal years. You know, Reagan was strength whereas Carter was weakness. Clinton was youth to the, the old HW Bush Reagan. You can go on and on and on, right? Yeah. like family values from Bush over the Clinton scandals, et cetera my sense is that politics is a way of taking care of these things and that will reward more optimism and hope within our politics and you can see little examples of this you know there's this uh governor of utah spencer cox um who's i've interviewed him a couple times outside of lost debate and he when he was running for office most recently campaigned in ads with his democratic opponent where they talked about how they were going to elevate the discourse and actually make their state stronger because of the campaign and that they weren't going to view each other as like their blood feud enemies but just people who have different ideas of where to take the state you know and but i'm not like totally utopian about this. I don't expect that to be the standard, but I think we're we're going to see more candidates head in that direction.
0: Yeah, I hope voters get tired of the two-party system. But,
1: <laughs> you know. All right, well, uh, let's talk about Florida, Ricky. There was an insane case where a roofer was arrested. What, what happened here?
0: Yeah, so this guy, um, he came from Texas. He owns a roofing company there. And after Hurricane Ian, he went to Florida, where there was a huge need for people who could fix homes, could fix roofs in uh, particular. And he brought his trailer with him. He he's responded to hurricanes in other states before. Um, he gives people like tarps to like shelter themselves and food and water and uh, devastation he has an a-plus rating with the uh, better business bureau so he's a, an upstanding contractor who went to florida to help people then um, the county sheriffs got a call from their um, business investigation department and someone said oh this guy is he's not licensed in florida of course he's licensed in texas the sheriff tracked him down and showed up to arrest him for having a contract, which he was charging people for it, but there there was a literal need for contractors and not enough to go around. And so he was arrested. There's a mugshot that's circulating of him, and he. this is a felony charge of operating without a license, even though he did have a license, just in the wrong state. Florida is, Um, One of a couple or actually one of a plurality of states that does not have universal um, licensing recognition laws and he could be charged with up to five years in prison It remains to be seen. I can't imagine that they would do that given how much negative press they've gotten. But it was very funny, like on Twitter, the the sheriff's or the police department was like gloating about what the pictures of him being arrested and someone doing business in Florida who's not supposed to. And so I think this gets to the yeah, heart. Well, it was of, a
1: meme where like people were putting like a toolbox in front of the sheriff's like, you know, yeah. almost like they're when <laughs> like, they rest like, like, like when they
0: have a drug. Bust. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, as we looked into this, one of the thing, reasons why we're excited about this is, this is obviously an absurd fact pattern. Yeah. But it belies a national issue that we have. Yeah. Which where we require licenses, Ricky, for a lot of jobs that don't need them right give mm-hmm. us some examples here of what we see around the country
0: yeah well just to give a little bit of a sense in the 50s it was like one in 20 workers that needed a license for whatever they were doing today it's one in three and analysis has showed that the majority of that shift is not because there are new more advanced jobs but just because like the mechanism of licensing people has just swelled right um and so there's there are places across the country that like i mean it, it makes sense that you'd want a bus driver um maybe someone applying pesticides Doctor. which could be toxic. Uh, medical professional a public school teacher there are some things that I think most people would say okay that makes sense but then you have like a home entertainment installer who's going to put up your TV needs a license for some reason um, a florist in Louisiana which is shocking a non-instructional teaching assistant which I don't understand a tree <laughs> trimmer um, and then some of these are actually like very burdensome. You need to take. You need to have years of experience, which means you lose time that you could be earning wages. You need to pay fees. You need to study for exams. And weirdly, the most burdensome job in states in which it's licensed is an interior designer, which is crazy, like what? What's often <laughs>
1: going on here is obviously protectionism. Like the people, you know, are pulling up the ladder after they ascend. yeah, and, you know, so the interior designers, for example, probably are like, hey, like, let's, let's make it hard to be an interior designer so that we can get paid more. And that means that it raises the cost for all of us, but also excludes a lot of people from the job market who otherwise can access it. And as somebody who's been an advocate for criminal justice reform, this is a particular burden on people coming out of the prison system, because mm-hmm. often w- the licenses exclude people for, uh, who have any felony record? Like, what you can't be a barber in some states if you have a uh, if you come out of the system. Now, if you can't be a barber if you're coming out of the prison system, start to ask yourself like, what are the jobs that you're going to be allowed to do? You start to yeah. exclude a lot of these things. Now, obviously, there's some of these things that we need. Like you say, even when you said like tree uh, trimmer or whatever everybody who's it's a only trimmer? seven
0: states though like yeah. that's the that's the question for me and i think the really interesting test that we can apply to almost all of these is some states are way worse than others florida's awful yeah. and other states are it doesn't seem to be more red
1: blue like no Louisiana, it's all and all over then the it'll place like california but yeah. then you know certain you it, know yeah.
0: it's all over the place but you have in the majority of these professions like they're i think they're like roughly a dozen i was looking at the list of um, occupations that are licensed in almost every state but for the vast majority of the 1100 plus jobs you have demonstrations in other states of this is what it looks like when there isn't a license mechanism and people aren't dying. The Yelp reviews are fine. Like there was one analysis yeah. that looked at Yelp reviews of licensed uh, people who needed a license in certain states and didn't and other states doing the same job. There's no difference in the Yelp reviews. Right. Like we have word of mouth. We have like businesses can endorse people. Larger national businesses can say this, like we approve this contractor which this guy, he was approved by some national roofers association so there's private solutions to it right not to mention that like today we've actually democratized how we review people and you can go on yelp and blast someone if you had a bad experience so i mean it's it's creating an unnecessary burden it's lifting up the ladder it's preventing interstate competition if you live near a border and somebody wants to do something for you cheaper like no somebody has a monopoly now
1: i had that question too as i was looking at this why doesn't this violate the dormant Commerce clause Which we talked about The other day Because this seems like This is explicitly A case of a guy Crossing borders To perform labor yeah. i don't know i don't want to get into that one besides um, yeah i think we, i put the audience to sleep on that segment <laughs> last week so i don't want to talk about that but the just to, to steel man the other side of this really quickly so if you're somebody who's pro license which i know is like yeah. a very reductive way of looking at it often what you're doing is if you're genuinely trying to justify a license you're worried about predatory practice you're worried about uh, weeding out the unskilled so like you, mm-hmm. if you it's really important you have a skill like a good example is you talk about tree trimmers i have a friend who's tree trimmer it requires if especially if you're ascending tall trees like a lot of safety concerns things like that and yeah, it but there are 43
0: states in which that's not a licensed occupation yeah. and like there there's not a an apocalypse happening in those states like right. i think that's the really important test that we're able to apply to a lot that of that might situations. be the exception i
1: don't want to get into the tree trimmer stuff but i have a lot of friends who hurt themselves in that job but that still doesn't mean necessarily he's licensed. I'm, I'm i'm a little bit more libertarian than most and thinking that those same people would say even my friends who've gotten hurt Um, I have a friend who had torn both biceps in the past two years climbing trees and people who've fallen and killed themselves Hmm. um, are that are part of his team. But if the license can help solve for that, I'd be interested. But often the license has nothing to do with any of that kind of stuff. Frequently. you have situations where licenses can ensure that practitioners are up to date on the latest. So my dad's a doctor and mm-hmm. he constantly has to get relicensed and then relearn the medicine, which is good for somebody like him who might not stay up to date on it. It yeah. could protect from scams. Like a good example is real estate. Like mm-hmm. if I'm going to a place and I want to buy a house or buy property or whatever, like at least you know this is a person who's in the record and who if you're transferring money to and yeah. putting title, all that um, yeah so like those are some of the reasons why you may want to license obviously it's gone out of control and often yeah. most of the things I described often have no relation whatsoever to the licensing process
0: Well I would say that um, an important place to like really look at the origins of this as um like a type of law that we even have on the books is in 1889 someone tried to strike down a physician licensing law in connecticut i believe and the court upheld the state's ability to uh, provide licenses for occupations if they're protecting from the quote the consequences of ignorance and incapacity as well as of deception and fraud and so those are very discreet i think those are very reasonable standards if you're protecting the consumer but oftentimes all that these licenses, especially in their more obscure applications, are really doing is preventing people in predominantly lower income jobs from being able to earn an income in all this time that they're supposed to be getting experience in something that like you could be getting the experience on the job right. with and actually enriching yourself in the process.
1: Well, people may ask, well, how is it possible that these laws are so predominant in both blue and red states? The answer is, you know, in in public policy circles, there's a sense that a lot of bad laws come from situations where you have uh, diffuse costs, meaning like taxpayers and the rest of us as society or consumers, we pay for something. And then there's a very concentrated benefit. Like to give people an experiment, like if if I passed a stupid law that's like, we're going to take 0.0001 cents from every person and we're just going to give it to some random trade group that has no claim on it. Most people aren't going to get upset at that because it's so small to Mm. each of them. But when you add it all up, it actually really benefits somebody. And then you start to put all these things together. That one person who gets that, the accumulation of all that wealth from that tax It's going to be way more motivated to lobby the legislators to keep that law than all the people paying the point zero 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 one cent because they're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's like not like it's not even worth a phone call. Like I don't care about that, right? And that's what happens when you start to pile these things on. But then we look back and we're like, wow, when you put it all together, it is actually really inconvenient, both as a consumer, as a potential employee, as somebody who just wants things to work and mm-hmm. it's a particular problem when we have a labor crunch like we do right now
0: yeah i mean some of the statistics here are kind of shocking to me the institute for justice which is um very pro like trimming down the licensing regulations in general um estimates that just in florida one hundred twenty nine thousand jobs are lost through this process that people may have otherwise you know been attracted to uh, an occupation that requires four years of training. And so they say, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. Um, And as much as $460 million in deadweight costs and $11 billion in misallocated resources, which like these are staggering to me and I don't have the expertise to really parse through how this is possible, but I mean, even just on the individual level, it's really clear to see how people are missing out on opportunities, or even how like, if you wanna be entrepreneurial and do something kind of different within an occupation, you can't do that, you can't ascend up the ranks. Like it's very protectionist, and I can see why lobbying groups and professional groups would be interested in keeping these in place. But by and large, like when you actually put them to the test of like a Sunrise Law or Sunrise Review when you're trying to pass a law and actually like saying, is there a demonstrable reason why we're doing this. An analysis found that across 15 states, 80% of the time, legislators say, oh, this bill that we were potentially going to pass actually isn't necessary and isn't protecting anyone in the process. So I think in terms of helping lower income people, helping immigrants who might have experience in different countries that's not recognized, helping people who want to do interstate commerce, helping young people who just want to be entrepreneurial and get started. Like there's this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. I don't really think it is because it's just like a mess, red and blue all over the country. But it's something that clearly needs to be scaled back. But it's just not sexy. And so it's not something people are talking about. It's not sexy and
1: it's not something that powerful groups have an interest in fixing, right? It would be, if if corporations were really wronged by this, Mm -hmm. they would be, up in arms about it, it would be changed in a lot of states now. But these things often affect like little small businesses, yeah. trade groups, things like that.
0: It affects independent people in in business. Right. It doesn't affect the the big businesses, and I think that's really is like you're right. That's the yeah. crux of the issue.
1: Yeah, and so, uh, but there is hope, and I think one of the reasons why we like this story is it is an area where it makes sense for people to work together. I know my fellow uh, liberals and progressives often when they hear deregulation alarm bells go off but this is actually an area where you need to just forget about how you feel about deregulatory moves writ large which you can have your skepticism about that but like focus on justice for a second and be like does this make sense like i know you call it deregulation but it we can reframe it for people who are progressive and say look this is part of criminal justice reform right and i know yeah. that there was there's was some momentum amongst like left leaning equal groups.
0: opportunity right. and being employed which seems pretty fair and I think it's probably unlikely that we will have a story this outrageous in the near future that would get us to have this conversation but I'm like still cannot believe that this guy was arrested.
1: Yeah. But I think it's like there's small outrages every day. There's the person coming out of the prison system who can't be a barber or you know somebody who dropped out of college who wants to you know get a realtor's license but can't afford it uh, or somebody who just is ignorant of the rule and gets thrown in jail because of it uh, or somebody who's just exhausted and doesn't even have the time and energy to figure out how to navigate a protectionist sort of cartel in whatever town yeah. that they're in. You know, this is just this is just the 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 slow moving anti the, the, the sort of war on sort of working people and poor people in this country and just regular people who are just trying to get by.
0: Hmm.
1: All right. Well, we have speaking of working people, uh, we have one final story here and Ricky, this has to do with gig workers. So the Biden administration just issued a rule about so-called gig workers and independent contractors. And as background, there's kind of two types of employees in this country. By and large, there are uh, W-2 employees, people like who get a salary, they get benefits, etc. And then there are independent contractors who have more flexibility, but they don't get things like health care, social security tax, etc. Um, they have a right. Uh, the the W-2 employees have more Uh, Rights to join unions, then independent contractors can't. There's a whole bunch of other differences. But the Biden administration reversed a Trump administration rule about gig workers, making it easier for gig workers to become W 2 employees and actually pushing a whole class potentially of gig workers, including a lot of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and delivery workers, pushing them into the category of WT2 workers, which will make it way more expensive for a lot of these companies, and also potentially take away some of the flexibility of uh, the workers who were previously Mm -hmm. gig workers, but in in exchange, they might be able to access more benefits.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting to see the history here, because this is basically returning more or less to the standard that the Obama administration was using, where whereas Trump kind of made it a little looser so that more people could fall into the gig uh, category, which I think is just grappling with a changing economy um, and a pretty fundamental level. Um, Companies that are fully dependent on gig workers has gone up from uh, 554% from 2014 to 2018, increased 34% um, in terms of people who are working freelance from 2020 to 2021 alone. 70% of them said they were doing it for work-life balance. 44% 44% of gig workers rely on that income primarily, um, and they make roughly 20% less on average. But I think there's there was just a shift towards the gig economy that was already happening. And then the pandemic really, um, like sometimes I think, pushed some people into that world if they lost their job and this was how they were making ends meet, or just the pandemic and that life experience made them want a different kind of balance and some more freedom. And so I think we're seeing different administrations kind of grappling with how do we treat this completely new novel reality in our economy so how explain how do these different tests work and like how how does the trump administration's standard differ exactly from the biden administration's?
1: yeah essentially like this law goes back all the way to the 30s but essentially what the trump administration did was simplify the amount of questions we asked in determining whether somebody's a gig worker or not and they basically boil it down the trump administration to how much control workers have over their hours and responsibilities and to how much opportunity do they have to uh, increase their earnings and do other things either within or outside of the employment that they have and if you basically pass those two tests maybe also if you own your own equipment like let's say the car that you're driving you pass those tests you're probably a gig worker whereas the obama administration and and now biden uh, and some left-leaning states, like what California tried to do before that it was overturned in a referendum, try to add additional tests. And the biggest one, in my opinion, is is the work that the gig worker is doing integral to the business. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a new test that the Obama administration and and now Biden are interested in. And and essentially, why that's important is you could, if we look at Uber for example, under the Trump test. How much control do you have over your hours and responsibilities? You're an Uber worker, you could work whenever you want. How much opportunity do you have to increase your earnings by doing other things? Well, you could go work for Lyft, you could use your car for other purposes, etc. You can also just do anything you want um, mm-hmm. outside of driving a car, an Uber. So you'd pass those tests, so you'd be a gig worker under Trump. But under the the Biden test, you're doing something integral to that business. You're, you are the business. Like mm-hmm. if there's no Uber drivers, there's no Uber. So that under the biden test all the uber drivers potentially would be pushed into uh, full-time employees which means that they would be way more expensive they would get benefits uh, you know we would have to pay a portion of the social security taxes and uh, notably uh, they would be able to join unions and uh, the you know people who are more like sort of cynical or i would say have a political lens on this seem to think that's the real motivation here i talked this morning to uh bradley tusk a friend of mine who's you know i want to name is a lobbyist for gig companies and is a last time i checked a major shareholder in an uber i just wanted to get his perspective because i think i know the pro worker argument i've worked in democratic politics long enough Um, He basically says
3: organizing, sharing economy workers is the biggest opportunity private sector unions have had in decades. Private sector labor membership has plummeted since the 60s or 70s. And um, this is the first truly at scale, meaningful organizing opportunity they have. However, they can't sign people up to be members of their unions or even more important to them, have them pay union dues unless they are W-2 employees and not 1099 contractors. So effectively this was an attempt by biden to force most of the sharing economy workforce into w-2 status to therefore have them join unions and pay dues it's
0: interesting because there's an assumption that across the board gig workers would want to be uh, classified as full employees but the polling data is kind of a mess in this front like one mckinsey poll found that 62 percent of contract workers do want full-time employment whether that means it's at, with Uber and Lyft and or doing DoorDash or somewhere else I'm not sure but um one poll out of Massachusetts found that 27 percent of gig workers only 27 percent wanted employee status at the jobs that they were at so I think it's it gets complex because you have people choosing these jobs of course I think there is a faction of people who felt forced into them and like they had nowhere else to go during lockdown when people like demand for delivery was up but maybe your waiting job was a thing of the past but I think there are also a plurality of people People who choose it for the flexibility, for the fact that, like, if they're caring for a sick uh, family member or for a child, like, they don't have to be driving at any given moment. They can pick their own hours. And I think there's a potential that this legislation overlooks the fact that flexibility is something that's valuable to people, whether or not they're doing something integral to the company. the The value is that they are doing something integral, but that if they don't do it, someone else is doing it. And I think that's that's part of Uber's business model. It's built in. And Uber and Lyft say that costs are gonna go up 20 to 30% for them if if this is implemented. So I think, I mean, it's also worth saying this will likely be challenged in court if it mm. does end up going through. But I think it, it kind of simplifies the issue and makes it seem like there's just these big companies that are conspiring against workers when I think that it's a little more complex than that for sure.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the Labor Secretary Marty Walsh I think tried to simplify it a little more than the evidence warranted. So he was asked over the summer about this and said that 95% of people would say yes to being classified as employees of the independent contractors. Mm. Now, the data you shared suggests otherwise. Now, there is the McKinsey study who goes one way, which says that workers would want to be classified as employees. But there's a whole bunch of polling data that suggests otherwise, including data that came after California's referendum. And Mm -hmm. California is a complicated story, but basically the legislators there passed this provision called AB5, which essentially would do what the Biden administration is proposing here and push all these workers to full-time employees. Then the uh, electorate by referenda overturned that. And then there's a poll I saw that interviewed the workers afterwards, and they seem, um, by pretty significant margin, happy with their experience after the referenda, saying like they're they're happy with the law as it stood and feel like they're starting to work out things like benefits, which is their real concern. And when I spoke to Bradley Tusk about this, he makes an interesting point.
3: The sharing economy is a relatively new thing, not much more than 10 years old. And you have people who just don't neatly fit into either category. And the reality is Instead of asking ourselves, what is best for the bottom line of Uber or Lyft or DoorDash or what is best for the bottom line of SCIU or the hotel trades or whoever it is, the answer should be what's best for these people who are working, right? And we know what they want. They want flexibility. They want control over their schedule. They want to pick the work they do and don't do. But they also want the ability to get pension and disability and workers' comp and healthcare benefits. And there's no reason we can't create a category that says, look, Not all of the rules that apply to W-2 apply to this new category. Not all of the rules that apply to 1099 apply to this category. But based on what would be best for the people working in this situation, here's a system that gives them flexibility, but also gives them more opportunity that the kind of benefits that come with W2. Right
1: now if I have an independent contractor like every now and then we work with independent contractors who help us with you know graphic design or something And let's say I'm working with this person on an ongoing basis and I want to offer them health care I actually can't because if I offer them health care it will push them into full-time employment. Now what Tusk is saying let's add a third category so that the employer can offer that health care without pushing the person into full-time
0: employment. Mm. Yeah I mean I think that also would allow for some free market response because if like Lyft were to spontaneously offer healthcare to everyone, it would make headlines. I think people would be using Lyft more often. I think almost every Uber driver would be using Lyft more often and it would just create a competition there. But I think it also, I mean, this is just a larger meta point that we don't have to parse through, but it's just confusing to me that your employer would be the provider of your healthcare in the first yeah. place like it it just seems strange to me that that's built into full-time employment like if you if you want to take the extra money and pay for health care, great. That sounds like the responsible thing. If you don't or if you want to make different decisions, I don't know that's on you. I think that this whole system is very convoluted. And the fact that our economy is shifting away from this idea that you just have one employer and one full-time job is revealing that that's kind of a strange like setup that we have.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Tusk mentioned that the unions are in an interesting place here because in certain places like here in New York, 32BJ, one of the local unions, is opposing efforts to for employers to offer healthcare to the flexible employees because mm-hmm. what the unions want to safeguard is like basically the only route to getting healthcare is if you become a, a full time employee that you could join a union, and they want to be the sort of gatekeepers, uh, according to Tusk, of the healthcare benefits themselves. Mm-hmm. So what basically that would add another layer. So not only is your yeah. employer a gatekeeper for healthcare, but then the union is also kind of a gatekeeper too. And I think that to me is strange, but yeah, like obviously there's a whole question about like employer provided healthcare, et cetera. And to me, anything that loosens things up and makes it easier for people to get healthcare helps. It is fascinating to see where this goes right now, especially in a tight labor market, because this does seem like strange timing, right? Because if the Biden administration really moves forward with this and, you know, prevails, There will be fewer people doing these jobs in all likelihood, Mm -hmm. and that means that it'll be harder to get an Uber, harder to get a delivery person, and potentially more unemployment because uh, these people who are sort of classified as like sort of employed will no longer be able to do some of these jobs, right? Because they might not want or have the flexibility for one reason or another to do The gig work. And that's why, like, in one of the briefs to the National Labor Relations Board, there were a ton of freelance associations advocating against the Biden administration change. They were, you'd think they would be for it, but they're not.
0: Yeah, no, it makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I know, especially a lot of people my age who would rather be their own bosses and like cobble together different hustles and figure out where that takes them in the post-pandemic era than maybe like signing with someone through a job fair in college. Like, I, I think that there's, like, there's just like a frictional change that's happening post pandemic. And that's why gig workers are going up. I think, in part, out of desperation, but also in part, out of like this kind of sense that people can be their own bosses today that I don't think existed as much before. And obviously, the economy needs to settle in post pandemic. And things are like we're still going through a lot of the growing pains of how the job market has changed. But I, would not say that the best idea is to pull the rug out from under people's feet who are figuring out how to make ends work in this new reality.
1: Well, there are a couple of insightful comments that I think challenge, I think, kind of the consensus that you and I have on this. Uh, and we found some good stuff in Reddit, actually. So I'm going to read a couple of these. Uh, here's from one Reddit commentator. Um, in my opinion, by far the most important thing And whether or not you're a contractor is whether you have any control over the pricing of your services. For example, I'm a contractor and when I'm having discussions with potential clients, I tell them my expected hourly rate. We may have some negotiations around that and they may walk if they think I'm too expensive or I may walk if they think I'm too cheap. With the big gig companies, there's none of that. The problem with them is that they want full control over customer experience, but then they want to treat their employees like contractors. They can't have it both ways. You know, so uh, although I am... Like, I'm probably, I would say I'm partial to the Uber, Lyft, gig worker narrative around the people who want the flexibility and want Mm -hmm. to retain it. This is a good point, I think. Like, Like, legally, like, they are, the industry is asking for a very strange carve out here
0: but i also think that they are providing a an unprecedented benefit like if you're if you're a full-time employer you're going to set someone's price and set their hours and their time and how they do everything and i think there is a meaningful difference to saying like yes i'm going to effectively set your price you could choose to drive during surge hours which is a thing that happens with uber or you could choose to drive in in certain areas if that's possible to you to like if you're near an airport go like hang out in that area i think there is a degree of control that's or or like on a saturday night at midnight when people are drunk and coming home from places like there is a degree of control that i think these companies do genuinely provide the people who work for them that to me is very valuable to like the experience that employees have even though their price is algorithmically controlled by this company.
1: Yeah, I think it would be a clear-cut case if they were just merely providing like the task rabbit-like service and people were finding themselves and setting their own prices. In the end, though, I think as we look about what's gonna happen moving forward, this is tricky because I don't I'm not gonna get into this too much, but there mm-hmm. are there's two different types of venues to hear these disputes. And one of them is this thing called the National Labor Relations Board. And this is a, it's kind of a quasi judicial body that hears only labor cases and the Biden administration, you know, as part of like taking power to, uh, to replace two Trump administration employees on, on the national labor relations board almost immediately. So it's now a very pro democratic body compared to what it was under the Trump administration. And basically what's going to happen is disputes around this provision going to be heard once there's like a public comment period going on right now but as mm-hmm. soon as it's done people can challenge it it will be heard by both the national labor relations board but then also uh federal courts and what happened in a previous case which was a fedex case where the fedex drivers tried to organize fedex refused to recognize it um the national labor relations board went one way the circuit court went the other way it led to a bunch of confusion it, that was basically clarified when trump pushed both in the same direction mm-hmm. but Here, what's going to happen is, at least if the Biden administration stays in power for long enough, is you could have a split. And it will have to be decided by the Supreme Court because the National Labor Relations Board tends not to recognize the circuit court's authority over it, but will recognize the Supreme Court's authority over it. So this is destined to go to the Supreme Court unless Biden loses. At -hmm. that point, Tusk seems to think that this will resolve itself again, kind of like it did last time with the FedEx case where a Republican administration would immediately change the National Labor Relations Board and create parity amongst the circuit courts and the National Labor Relations Board. But that's the end of my legal lesson for today. In the end, I just think that I would be hard-pressed to think that this is actually going to see the light of day because of all the litigation and everything going around it, just like the California rule, Mm -hmm. AB5, didn't didn't really live very long. Uh, I don't think that this is going to survive too long, so it's more of a theoretical debate than anything else right now. I think that's it. If you are listening at home, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's really important to us to have those reviews because you know we're a relatively new show, and we want people to go on there and you know understand why it is that you love this show. Uh, you could also go on YouTube and hit that like button, and we'll be right back here later this week, uh, same time and same place.